Hammer is standing at Jungstorge with the new leader of AUF, the Workers' Youth League, Astri Villa Eide Hoem. Now Astri, how does it feel to stand on this historical ground for the Labour Party? It feels historic and also it feels kind of like every day since I work in this building <laughs> and go there every day. But, uh, but sometimes when I look at at the uh, Labour Party building and uh, the workers' organization ALLO, I always think about uh, every historic moment that has been between these buildings. And here there's been strikes that have changed Norway, there's been political speeches that have changed Norway. And for me, right personally, it was the first place where I felt home in Oslo when I moved here from Kristiansund. When did you participate in your first party congress? Oh, I, I think I was, I watched like I was uh, in the back of the Congress in 2011, but I wasn't a participant, uh, so it was maybe in 2013. But in AUF I was at my first Congress in 2010. The Party Congress uh, is a bit of a mystic arena to some of us. Uh, although what happens there is completely open, to anyone who wants to read the protocol or is it like you can watch it online these days? Yeah, you can watch it online and if you are a member of the party you can also uh, like watch it from a bench in the back. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, but I was wondering um, for you, how how is it to be there? It's kind of like you feel the historical sense of many years of Labour Party politics at the same time as you are trying to shape the future politics and um, and what's like the um, the most makes the most impact at me is all the uh, people from AUF uh, going talking about climate change or gender equality or uh, school politics and it's people down in like 14, 15 years old, who are challenging the next Prime Minister of Norway in uh, political areas. And that's maybe what I think is like the biggest part of the Congress. Agitation, comrades! I'm Rose Hammer, and you are listening to Radio Rakel, the world's oldest feminist radio station. And with us today, we have the Belgian political theorist Chantal Mouf by phone from her London flat. And from an old Zoom meeting in the early days of the pandemic, we have the Stavanger politician for Rött, Mimi Christiansson. And a shout out to Claire, our fantastic technician. We will of course give you the next chapter from the radical flu, made with inspiration from the protocols of the Labour Party Congress in 1918. The words from the delegates were written down quite precisely. The original document. It's almost like a theatre piece in itself, ready to be reenacted. 
We will hear speeches from the pulpit at Folketshus, agitation for convincing the majority. Before the play starts, back to Jon's story. It is a perfectly grey day here at uh, Jungstorge. There are uh, not so many people here. There are mostly seagulls. So, Astrid, you have agreed to hold a speech for us about why you believe in the future of the Labour Party. So the grounds of this uh, historic square is yours. Thank you. Dear friends and comrades, are you ready? Because we have to be ready now. Because this is our time. It is our time to create a fair future. It is our time to create a climate-friendly world. It is our time to create a world where you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be white. You don't have to be a man. You don't have to be straight to have the same opportunities. A world where you can be just who you are. A world of different people, but who share the same opportunities. This is not the time for small thinking. Our time is a time for big ideas, for the largest dreams. Our time is a time for change. It is you that are here tonight that have the courage to change the world. You who believe in the love and community although the hate can be so strong. Because the opposite of love, that's not hate as many believes. It is indifference. Indifference is more powerful than hate because it allows hate to grow. It does not speak up. It does not stand up for others. It does not fight. Indifference allows others to hate, allows others to treat human beings as groups. Indifference looks away when the rights of others than themselves are threatened. It explains away instead of speaking up. Indifference does not stand up for justice, for unity, or for our values. And this is not the time for indifference. This is the time for the burning hearts. The time for us who know that people can change the world. The time for us who know that politics can change people's lives. Dear friends and comrades, this is our time. The Radical Flu by Rose Hammer, a radio play in eight parts, produced in collaboration with Nortam and Radurakil, the world's oldest feminist radio station. The Radical Flu, part two. Roses are red. Characters. Anna Jonsson, member of the Norwegian Labour Party. Hanna Adolfsson, member of the Norwegian Labour Party and head of the Norwegian Labour Party's Women's Federation from 1920 to 1923. Rakel Grepp, Norwegian journalist and politician for the Norwegian Labour Party. Marta Tines, one of the pioneering members of the Norwegian Labour Party's Women's Federation, which he presided from 1904 to 1920. Adam Egedenissen, Norwegian postmaster and politician. Madame Balabanov, Russian Druish, Italian communist and social democratic activist. 
Sett Höglund, founder of the Swedish Communist Movement, Ole O. Liam, Norwegian trade unionist and politician for the Labour Party, Martin Tranmel, leader of the Norwegian Labour Party and convert to communism after learning of the Russian Revolution of 1917. The Radical Flu has been commissioned by Uslo Biennale with the kind support of Kyf Kiu. In the Congressional Hall of Folkets Hus at Jungstorge, roughly 300 members of the Labour Party are finding their seats amongst long tables arranged in banquet style. There is a certain exquisiteness to the room that can't be ignored. On each side of the podium there are large palm trees and the national flag is draped to the wall behind the main speaker. Bouquets of flowers decorate the tables, where every member has a neat folder in front of them with the agenda. Towering above them are giant chandeliers. One gets the feeling that the party certainly hasn't spared any expenses. Marta Tines, Hanna Adolfsen and Rakel Grepp step into the room, filled almost exclusively with men. To think that we were over 100 women here at our own congress in January. And look at us here, at the big boys' table where real decisions are made. How many are we, Martin? Thirteen women? That makes about... One um, percent in representation. Keep your brooding to yourself, Adolfsen. You realize that you speak on behalf of that 1%, Mrs. Tunis? When you talk about the needs of your bourgeois housewives... There is a heightened sense of expectation and distress in the room. A change is in order. A new radical stance must be taken, as was executed in the revolution by their fellow comrades in Russia in the month of October the year before. They need to be organized, and they need to be ready. There is serious chatter amongst the tables. The treatment our workers are getting from the sitting government is despicable. Let's see how that bastard Gunnar Knutsen would react if he got the rations most people in my neighborhood at Kampen have gotten. Some people, not even that. Martin Tranmel cannot and will not be the leader of our party. I assure you, he will most certainly be the demise. Have you heard what happened to Comrade Höglund at the border? Apparently he has been detained. On the podium stands Adam Egedenissen, Master of Ceremonies at the Congress. He was called the Red Postmaster in his hometown of Stavanger. He had a fond interest in art, music and theatre, to quite an unusual extent for a communist. Earlier that year, he had visited Russia and Petrograd, where he had met Alexandra Kolontai and Vladimir Lenin. With a certain austerity, he is seeking to influence the party through his first-hand accounts with Bolshevism. There is certainly an air of sophistication about the man. The Congress 
speaks with utmost indignation to the Norwegian government's scandalous methods of denying Comrade Oglund entry to the country. The sitting government has not only disregarded the law, but has also made a mockery out of the Norwegian working class. We have been in contact with Justice Minister Otto Blair, who said nothing more than that it would be looked into. He further inquired what crimes Oglund had been accused of in Sweden, and I refreshed his memory by stating that he was sentenced in 1905 for encouraging the Swedish people, with all their might, to oppose a war with Norway, as the bourgeoisie wanted to take the country back by force after the independence. He didn't inquire any further. <laughs> Nevertheless, Madame Balabanov is here as a representative for the Bolshevik party. She will speak about her continued war for peace throughout this war within the Zimmerwald movement. Balabanov is one of the foremost agitators for the Italian workers and a member of Partito Socialista Italiano. Many there have left the party during the war for the national syndicalist cause, joining Mussolini's fascist revolutionary party. Dear comrades, a movement that is fundamentally against everything we stand for is on the rise and spreading. And I think this is just the beginning. Balabanov has been standing on the front line fighting for international peace amidst this militant nationalistic tendency. We have all much to learn from each other. Let us give her a warm welcome. I want to thank you on behalf of the Simmerwald Commission for inviting us. As I understand, it has been quite a struggle. Simmerwald is proof that despite the war, there are workers who internationally stand united on the socialist ideas. Many countries have come together in Simmerwald and declared that the war being led is not their war, not to create a divide, but to unite all socialists who believe that we must fight against all war. The so-called peace the bourgeois governments are stating is simply a mask to increase their sphere of exploitation. A capitalist peace would only mean heavy war debts on the working masses. It is with great unease we see how the ruling classes have categorically condemned the proposed manifesto from our last conference. With it, we want to encourage the working class to use the necessary methods, mass protest, general strike, to bring the war to an end. The Russian workers do not want to be chased out on the war fields to die for the bourgeoisie, but they are willing to suffer and die for socialist execution. We thank you for the sympathy you have shown and that you understand that the Russian Revolution cannot be victorious alone, only with the whole world's proletariat. And Norway's part in this mission is of great importance. Now the bell tolls for the resurrection of Christ. Let us hope that the day is near when all bells will talk, all lips will sing, 
own hearts will cheer. Socialism has arisen in humanity. The members of the Congress were to vote for or against participation in Zimmerwald. Voting functioned in the way that a majority proposal, the elected leadership's view and strategy, was first presented. Members could object by presenting a so-called minority proposal, and all members would vote in favour of the majority's or the minority's view on the issue. In the case of Zimmerwald, there was no minority proposal and endorsement was approved almost unanimous with a majority. Now, to address the most urgent matter. Ole Olien is speaking. A well-rounded and eloquent man that represents the reformist side of the party. Although he himself has a clear understanding of where his allegiance lies, he is seen as a bridge between the two sides. There is no doubt that his rhetoric sways the stance of his listeners. Lian is intimidated by the radical aura in the room, which he is certainly not a part of. Is he perhaps even viewed as a bit of a bourgeois? In these times where there has been such a high cost of living, one says that there must be a swift and radical intervention on the state side, so that every aspect of these goods, all key commodities, are seized or registered, and further, that our society through its organs can gain complete control over the turnover and distribution. There has been five demands we can all agree on. The first concerning the conditions of our nutrition. We need sudden rationing of food and an effective distribution of milk so that these goods are not withheld from the least able buyers of the public. Our fish, which we have more than enough of, can't just be sent off to Spain. We must regulate the maximum prices. The second demand regards the production of food. As our men are sent out on weapon training instead of farming our land, they leave our poor women and children to take care of that work. You'll never farm a single potato in your life. Third is about the question of unemployment which we all agree should more or less be eliminated by the state. The fourth, lowering prices for residents and the catastrophic sums for building. State and municipality must control the building materials. The fifth and final demand is that the state must provide proper funding for these demands. That we now pursue these steps in an organized manner is the most reasonable strategy for reaching Socialism. Enough of this bureaucratic reasoning. Nothing will happen unless we take action. Mm. Yeah. Which is exactly what brings me to my next point. Although we agree about our demands, we do not agree on our approach, on our tactics, so to speak. The quarrel within our party has become so tearing that it threatens the unity of our movement. As one side wants to execute direct action, Damn right. the other is of the opinion that general strike, mass protest, or revolution will only hurt the working class own cause. It is not the working class freedom and the community's victory one wants, but the working class superiority 
with an oppression of everyone who thinks differently. Give me a break. How are we going to destroy this galling, self-righteous, right-wing regime in the election this fall if we can't even reach a majority in parliament? At most, we can reach 45 representatives in Stortinget. And even with that, we won't have a majority. While some want to go to parliament, others do not. So to parliament or not to parliament, what do we do? What must be done? As a man stands up, the whole room shifts with great expectation. Martin Tranmel is the main voice of the radical currents within the party and is historically often referred to as the Norwegian workers' movement's greatest legend. A public speaker grazed by God, the socialist one. The captivating agitator was like dynamite for the workers in Norway. He could speak on demand for thousands, a reckless giant with sparkling blue eyes and stray hair. When he opened his mouth, it was like the gates of hell opened, and out of it exploded a rain of lava that threatened to burn down the entire capitalist system. Now he has a firm and calm tone to his fellow members. Dear comrades, I think Leon must be referring to the loony bin over at Lövebakken, where our current political representatives are steering the fate of this country only for the rich. Hear, hear! This is not about parliament or not. It is about the recognition or not of the non-parliamentary means with which we must stand ready to use. The workers' movement is more than voting every third year. And it is by the workers themselves that action shall come. They shall take it in their own hands and lead the way. We see that it works. In Trondheim, 2,000 housewives demonstrated. And quite readily, the Council for Provisioning was more benevolent. Their demands came through and put food on the table. There is promise in this. It gives hope and strengthens the will to fight. These new forces that are arising should therefore be given room and not put in a straitjacket. Leon and the reformists make parliamentarism identical with democracy, and they claim that mass protest leads to dictatorship. But I say, what is a system of government that can't even provide food and a roof over your head? It is a system that must be changed. What do you suggest then? Perhaps some dynamite in the boreholes? As you all well know, Fra Mel is a spokesman even for union sabotage, as he encouraged striking workers to leave dynamite if scabs showed up to take their duties. Tactics such as these are extremely counterproductive for the labor movement. How can we let the structural violence we have seen continue? The prosecution of our fellow comrades just for expressing their opinions without letting action speak louder than words. Our workers' councils are working. Decision power rises from bottom to top, from the agendas of the workers themselves. Now we must recognize the importance of the soldiers' councils. Our goal is to demilitarize. But while the ruling class stands armed, the workers stand unarmed. 
We all know that Prime Minister Gunnar Knudsen and his gentlemen won't hesitate a second in deploying the military against the workers and our revolutionary cause. And that is why we must take back the control of the army through the soldiers' councils and then demilitarize. Creating these soldier councils represent an unnecessary threat to the status quo, and they will create further confusion in how we organize towards our end goal. Demilitarization must come from a parliamentary level. Parliamentary level, my ass. When I hear the reformists, the so-called majority speaker at the meeting today, it reminds me of the rat catcher of Hamelin, who played his flute, trying to attract our might with his charismatic words to keep things tidy and orderly while secretly leading us to our demise. Demise? I agree that us deemed as conservatives within this party can at times waltz around like a tame bear with a ring in its nose. And by God, now it seems that this radical force can just drag us after itself. But I assure you, we will wake up from our slumber. We will be ferocious, and we will eat all this radicalism and the illusionary fruits you think it may bear. We will awaken, just like the troll in the fairy tale, which has smelled the blood of a Christian. I think you got the wrong tale, Did you ever understand our dear Wesley Frick with the fiddle? What on earth does Wesley Frick have to do with us reaching Parliament? This is just another of you radical scheming shenanigans. Even though he was poor, he chose to help the man poorer than himself. And for that, he was granted three wishes. Even though he could wish for anything, he first asked if he could have a fiddle that made everyone dance when they heard its sound. When Wesley Frick had his second wish granted, it was for a rifle that hit everything it aimed at, no matter the distance. Much like the proletariat aimed to strike down the ruling class. Wesley Frick's last wish was that no one could deny him his first wish. And therefore, comrades, it's time to start dancing. Please stop! Dancing is contagious! Maybe it will end up like the plague of 1518, where so many went into a trance-like craze and danced all the way to their tombs! Ha! When the authorities in the end arrested our dear Wesley Frick and planned to hang him for his misdeeds and use of magic... Wesley Frick was a lunatic. Always so cheerful. That smile. It was only ever to his... Just like Tronmel, who spoke at our rally at Stortinget earlier this month. Now he has a jail sentence on him for 60 days just for speaking his mind. What all of us are thinking. In front of the loony bin parliament. Agitation, they call it. Well, so let us give them exactly that. suddenly springs up from her seat. I say, let us instead listen to the minority in Tranmer, who, when I come to think of it, reminds me of Wesley Frick with his fiddle. Marta Tines stands up in disapproval of this last comment made by Anna Jonsson. I beg your pardon? Jonsson, who has seen firsthand how the poor working ladies of the city 
have not had their demands voiced, is now ready to express them. She will not be seated and silenced, and TNS politeness for Congress etiquette makes her stand down and let Jonsson proceed. When I vote for the minority's proposal, which Tranmel suggests, it is with the assurance that I have most of Oslo's working women behind me. These women are affected greatly by the difficulties of these times, and they feel it on a day-to-day -day basis. They demand that something must be done. When the conference dealing with these issues was cancelled last year, the leadership lost contact with the workers, and even more with the working women. We are disappointed, and we have lost our faith in the leadership who should have provided working homes with the support they need and have a right to under the state. You reformists now try to frighten us with this talk of a revolution and all what it will lead to. But if conditions aren't improved and the situation will increasingly get worse, it will be the working women who encourage the revolution instead of preventing it. When Madame Johnson said that she has the majority of the women with her, I want to remind you all that Oslo's Women Association have not agreed to the minority proposal. What I do know is that Madame Johnson has agitated, which she has the right to, but that she has the nerve to say that she is speaking on behalf of all women in the country, to even think that she has them all behind her, that I simply cannot understand. My impression from women is the opposite of Madame Johnson's. So to say, a womanly word from us referred to as the majority in regards to this. It is the question of food that is of utmost importance at this moment. Will there be more food if we start a revolution? Oh no, I dare say, there will not. It will increase poverty increase the mess and chaos we see around us right now. Heated discussions arose around the tables before the voting of the party's tactics. When the votes came in late in the evening, a great roar was heard all the way outside of Folkets Hus at Jungstorge. The minority had won with 159 votes against the majority's 126. A new current was established within the party. Quite unbelievably, Kiri Grepp, Rakel's husband, a man who could barely speak and would die of tuberculosis four years later, was voted as a new chairman for the Labour Party. He was by many viewed as the only man capable of keeping this two-headed troll at ease. Martin Tranmel was chosen as a new secretary, although in practice, he would lead the party up until the Second World War. Amidst the jolly celebratory atmosphere amongst the radicals in the room, Adam Egedenissen approaches the podium with an announcement. We've got a message that the detainment of Oglund, ordered by the Justice Department, has been lifted. It should be arriving any moment. Aha! And here we welcome, dear comrade. What a pleasure. To those who are unfamiliar to our Swedish comrade, Oglund has fought hard for anti-militarism and is a good friend of Lenin. I hope you can share some words with us regarding the revolutionary developments abroad. 
Please take the podium, my dear Ted. Dear comrades, I was invited here to share my views on the Norwegian Labour Party's duties to join Simeval and the Peace Manifest for Europe's workers. The decision that was taken today, as I have understood, that your party has chosen the revolutionary socialist path shows great promise. We must oppose the imperial system and capitalist institutions. And the continued class struggle is the only possibility in order to restore peace. You understand our duties in the final settlement with capitalism. once more because I messed up with the recorder, you know, I'm not a professional, but um, can I just call you and you say, as we did, like you say hello and... No, I don't understand. You want to call me again for what? For just faking the intro once again because I messed up uh, with the recorder uh, in the beginning of the recording. Uh, Okay, but but only only your intro. Only your intro, no? But yeah, uh, yeah, my yeah. answer is okay, no? Okay. Your answer is perfect. Okay, yeah. all right. So you I, want to call me or you want to read no? I, I can just call you. Um, okay, all right. Yeah. Hello? Hello, it's Rose Hammer calling from Oslo. Is it Chantal Mouf, the political yes. theorist? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And where are you now when we are speaking? I am in my flat in London. Yes, do you have a lockdown too or not, no? Yeah, actually, just this week we got back to almost a lockdown, but... <laughs> well, he's in London too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're all at home, almost all of us. But I read your book recently, uh, For a Left Populism, that you wrote in 2018. And it made me think a bit, and I have some questions for you. Okay. 
Mm, so today, the left are standing in front of new crossroads and challenges. And here in Norway, the Labour Party has moved more and more to the centre. And it's talked about how people are losing their faith in them. And I guess this is not a unique story. Um, it would be interesting to hear what you have to say about this development here in Scandinavia, um, but also abroad in relation to your book, if you would like to elaborate on it. Okay, so in, uh, in Foreign Populism, in fact, what I do is to examine what I call the populist moment. And I think that the consequence precisely of this phenomenon that you are mentioning about um, you know, Norway, the fact that the Labour Party is moved more and more to the center. Because this is a phenomenon that took place uh, in most of, um, if not all, uh, social democratic party in Europe. And uh, it began, in fact, in uh, Britain uh, with Tony Blair uh, and the Labour Party. And it's clearly a consequence of, uh, you know, the neoliberal hegemony. The neoliberal, uh, of course, revolution was... uh, launched first in Britain by Margaret Thatcher, and, the con- that, and that has profound consequences on the development of the uh, Labour Party in Britain, because when the Labour Party came back to power with Tony Blair, in fact, we all, all expected in hope that, you know, th- there would be a really uh, a reaction against uh, this uh, neoliberal politics, but it did not happen, and the Labour Party, in fact, accepted the thesis that there was no alternative to neoliberal uh, globalization. You probably remember that Margaret Thatcher is known for a, Tina, there is no alternative. And in fact, the Labour Party accepted that and began, you know, this move to the center that you mentioned in Norway, well, it, be, it happened in, uh, in first in the, in the Labour Party, then it moved, uh, we found that again in, uh, in Germany with uh, uh, Schroeder and the Neue Mitte, and then we find it in France. So this is a phenomenon that moved from Britain to many other countries in Europe, and it also reached Scandinavia, but later, uh, uh, in fact, it took, I think the Scandinavian countries were the, the last one where, you know, the, the Labour parties became really, you know, accepted neoliberalism. I don't know much about uh, Norway, I must say, but I know more about Sweden, and I know exactly you know, the moment when the Swedish uh, Labour Party, you know, basically uh, transformed itself into a social liberal. And what uh, I'm interested in, uh, is to, in, in fact, already in the book where I was analyzing the phenomen- this phenomenon in um, Britain, uh, it's a book called On the Political, I was predicting that the consequences of, of that will be the development of the force of right-wing populism. Because the co- basically the, this move to the center uh, of social democratic parties consisted in the fact, fact that they really abandoned defending the interests of the working class and the popular sector. Their term, term moral defense of you know the, the middle class and in fact were, uh, working class they really felt abandoned. There was absolutely no party anymore was speaking for them, and it created the terrain for right-wing populist parties to come and say no, but. 
you are wrong. There is an alternative to neoliberal globalization, and we are going to give back to the people the, the, the voice that the establishment elite has uh, taken from them, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I think for me there is a clear correlation between the, the, the growth of uh, rising populist parties and this move toward the center of uh, social democratic parties. I'm thinking, like, in the midst of growing right-wing populism now, do you think we can learn something from revisiting strategies that was used uh, by the left in the past? <laughs> yes, in a sense, but uh, in, a, in a paradoxical way, because in, in order to say not to do what, not to repeat what they've been doing. So not 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 seeing positive mo- mo- model. But the contrary, I think that by revisiting strategies of the left in the past, we realize things that we should not do. Because I think that, uh, and and here I'm referring, for instance, to the work of uh, Ernst Bloch in his book, History of Our Times, where he, in fact, uh, showed that the left was very much uh, in in those years responsible for the development of uh, uh, of fascism and Nazism, and, and, and he is particularly critical of the left in Germany, and particularly critical of the Communist Party, because he's, he's saying those parties, they do, did not take seriously the demand for protection of the people. They, they saw that, oh no, protection of his reactionary, you know, with, uh, and they, they, they did not uh, take seriously the role that a certain kind of emotion could play. So, the, the, and they left all that for the, 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 the Hitler, you know, in, in Germany to organize. He is the one who really, you know, tried to give a form to the anxieties and, 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 and the desire for protection of the, of the people. So, I think that it's very important to, to revisit those uh, uh, strategies, but in order to understand what we should not do. Uh, uh, I think it's, it's and, and, and the danger, and because I think that today it seems also, um, well, the left, the left does not want to, to uh, uh, understand, you know, that question of protection are, are important. They, they think of it. it's reactionary, you know. And also, for instance, I think that uh, uh, the whole question of of protectionism, they think that uh, they are, in my view, too much still dominated by the imaginary of neoliberalism, Uh, uh, the development of a world in which there is no frontier, in which uh, goods and people can move without anything. Well, that that is, is not something, you know, in, in which the working class can uh, recognize themselves. Uh, and in fact, I, by the way, it's one of the success of uh, Trump in, in the U.S., you know. But, but those people feel that they need to be protected. And, and Trump, uh, of course, they are form of protectionism that, you know, can be more, more, more authoritarian. But protectionism could also be envisaged in, in a way which is progressive. And I think that this, this, is, this is a very important lesson to uh, learn from the mistake of, of the left in those periods. So not to repeat them, you know, to take, I would insist very much, uh, the left parties today need to take very seriously 
this demand for protection that we find in society and imagine a way in which this demand can be satisfied through measures which are going to progressive measures which are going to deepen and radicalize democracy. And this is, the, the, in my view, the role of left populist parties. You know, they need to envisage how you know, they can, uh, through what I call a green democratic transformation, create a political imaginary in which many different groups in society, uh, because I think it's obviously the working class, but not only the working class. I think, for instance, the feminist movement, the anti-racist movement, a lot of struggle which are, you know, more LGBTQ and all that. They need to, we need to develop a project uh, in which the, all those people feel that, you know, they, they, this is going to bring a better world for them. And, and I think that this is definitively uh, the way in which uh, we should meet the challenge that the ecological, social, and economic crisis that we are living today uh, can, can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, solved. It's, it's, it's a big name. But in, in order, we, we take to, to be honest in order to uh, develop a better and more uh, a democratic society. You are listening to Radio Rakel with Rose Hammer. I'm here with Rose, that is back in the studio from her adventure at Jonstorget. And we wish to say thanks to Chantal Mouffe that took her time to talk with us and give us a bit wider perspective of the situation that the left are facing today and was facing in the past. Yeah, and um, let's introduce our next guest, Mimi Kristiansson. Who will take up some threads from Chantal and give us a more some more perspectives on the last question that she was talking about. Um, because she has, he has written a book about a very interesting figure in the play, the Labour Party politician Martin Tranmel. And Mimer himself could sort of be described as a left-wing populist. Yeah, my mother knows him uh, because he was in the reality show Farmen on TV2. And, uh, but he also has this touch of uh, Adam Egdenissen, I would think, uh, the master of ceremonies from our play, uh, as he moved back to his hometown of Stavanger, um, where Nissen was the Red Postmaster back in 1918. And Mimi is now trying to take over the oil city and speak to the masses about socialism in almost every channel he can find for the political party Rött. So uh, you could sort of say he's the social media postmaster from Stavanger. His book, Martin Trammel's Method, is a bit of a political pamphlet together with a history book. Uh, and it was recently published at Manifest. But only in Norwegian, though. And it has the second title, When the Labour Movement Took Down the Far Right and How We Can Do It Again, which I think relates to what uh, Chantal was talking about in the end. So let's listen to what he has to say. Mm. Interested in 
and writing a book about him as well. Um, mm. Yeah, I can uh, talk uh, maybe a little bit about uh, Tarmel. Uh, Tarmel uh, is uh, the most important uh, labor leader probably in Norwegian history. Uh, he is uh, born on a small farm in Trøndelag, but his father uh, drinks too much, so the farm gets lost and he has to start work as a painter and uh, becomes a worker and a union activist. Tarnal as a person is maybe you could say something like a political warrior monk uh, of some kind. He has almost uh, no hobbies. <laughs> yeah. He only does politics. <laughs> and first of all, uh, of course, there is, he's a teetotaler, there's no drinking. And uh, second of all, he is never uh, ever involved with a woman in his entire life. Uh, which is probably because he was gay, but nobody really knows that. Everyone just expects that to be the case, and I, I do as well, but it's sort of not proven in any way. So Tarman never has a family and never has um, any sort of distractions outside the political movement or the labor movement. And he has an extreme stamina. He enters the political leadership of the Norwegian Labour Party in 1906, and he leaves in 1963. So he has 57 straight years as a member of the national executive of the Labour Party. And uh, Norway has uh, a younger working class in these years than Sweden and Denmark. Um, the Norwegian working class is boosted uh, because you have some very big industrial gains in these years, which means a lot of people come directly from the countryside and into becoming industrial workers. And these people are, uh, have very radical ideas and they don't have the sort of old traditions that, for instance, carpenters or painters, as Tarman himself, have within their professions. They're just uh, farm hands suddenly uh, pulled out to work in industry or on railroads. So Tarman becomes the leader of something that's known as uh, Fag Opposition, the labor opposition, which has a goal of uh, making the Norwegian labor movement revolutionary. And uh, he succeeds in that. He becomes very famous. He, he's on several trips in the United States where he gets involved with Eugene Debs' uh, Socialist Party, which is the icon for Bernie Sanders and so on, but also with the IWW, the International Workers of the World, which becomes later a syndicalist organization. And uh, he becomes very famous in Norway first when starting this uh, labor opposition. He becomes famous within the movement. But in uh, 1912, I believe, he holds a very famous speech, which is called the Dynamite Speech, where he basically says that uh, striking workers should leave dynamite in the boreholes uh, of mines so that scabs or strike breakers when coming to work will be killed. And uh, this, is, uh, this makes Tarnal uh, instantly a big favorite of Norwegian workers, <laughs> uh, but also sort of a demon in the, the bourgeois newspapers of Norway, where he is uh, depicted commonly as the most bloodthirsty man alive. Uh, the dynamite speech sort of is meant to scare people away from Tarnal. That's why it gets uh, such a great publicity but it has the opposite effect because Norway is entering into a sort of hardening class struggle and, uh, and at least rhetorically, the threat of killing strike breakers is uh, popular amongst many workers, obviously. 
So Tramel boosted by this maybe, and also boosted by uh, the World War, First World War, and then the Russian Revolution, uh, becomes uh, leader of Fag opposition and the Labour opposition. And in 1918, they managed to uh, win uh, the majority of the Norwegian Labour Party. And this is quite remarkable. Uh, I believe that the Norwegian Labour Party is the only Western European this is a little bit how you view the Italian movement, but it's uh, so many splits, so complicated. <laughs> but at least the Norwegian, uh, the Norwegian Labour Party is one of very, very few in, uh, in Western Europe where the revolutionary wing gains the majority. There's mm -hmm. a split all over Europe because of World War I and because of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. But in Norway, the radical revolutionary wing wins and the Norwegian Labour Party, which is today the biggest party in Norway and has been since 1924. And it's just a typical social democratic party, is even a member of the Comintern, Communist International, for a few years. And also during the 20s, the Norwegian Labour Movement sets an, uh, a world record in striking and other labour disputes. And there are extremely hard labour conflicts in Norway in these years. So this Tran, I'll figure what I believe is uh, is remarkable about him. Of course, he's just uh, in many ways just a product of uh, the times and conditions in Norway. But at the same time, he is the number one uh, leading figure of, of this movement. Is that he represents sort of a, a revolutionary or radical form of the socialism, which manages to gain hold within the traditional social democratic movement at least for some years. Yeah, with all this uh, talk of politics, Rose, I, I think we need a reminder of something. Prevent disease. Careless spitting, coughing, sneezing, spread influenza and tuberculosis. Yeah, Mimir also said in the talk uh, when when we met on the Zoom that when he studied that period and Tranel that he never really came across any information on the Spanish flu. Yeah, and, uh, and in this period it was the starting point when it when it was spreading or um, and it wasn't really a big talk in the political discussions. Uh, but if we go like two months uh, after the party congress to the 28th of uh, May, uh, that was when the Spanish King Alfonso got the uh, Spanish flu, which led to the name uh, of this influenza pandemic, because uh, it was to maintain morale. Uh, World War I censors minimized these uh, early reports, and newspapers were free to report the epidemic's effects in uh, neutral Spain, such as the grave illness of kill King uh, Alfonso XIII. And it was these stories that created a false impression of Spain as especially hard hit. And uh, it was this that gave the race to the name Spanish flu. But do you know if, like, was the flu around in Oslo and, or Christianes, as it was called, um, during the, the part of the play that we just listened to now? We came like more in the summer, the first wave. So it was just uh, something that was happening the early period abroad. Mm. Okay, so it's coming, it's coming, but not yet. 
Yeah, but I think you can tune in next week to hear the continuation uh, of our play. Uh, and if you would like to hear the first chapters again, uh, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, just search for The Radical Flu. And um, like uh, last week, uh, we want to give a shout out to Bergsonist and uh, play a track from her newest uh, EP, uh, which came out a couple days ago. Her productivity is simply insane and very inspiring. And the track is called Grassroots. Thank you for listening today. Yeah, and I, I almost forgot, Rose. Uh, you have a recipe for us. Uh, yes, on how to make a revolutionary cake. What is it? Yeah, just put dynamite in the borehole and just wait. Okay. And I also have a reformist cake for you. You just put concrete and then add water, stir and put it in a pan. Yeah, I think that uh, first one sounds pretty good. <laughs>